You are listening to In the Thick of It, a podcast from the HCM Society, where we interview experts in the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy field to broaden the awareness of new HCM studies and advancements. In this episode, host Dr. Charlene Day discusses an extraordinary topic, the transformative world of gene therapy with Dr. Carolyn Ho. The conversation delves into the fundamental concepts of gene therapy and investigates its promising applications in the treatment of genetic cardiomyopathies and arrhythmia syndromes. Together, they explore the potential to revolutionize the lives of individuals affected by these conditions, highlighting both the transformative possibilities and the obstacles encountered in the process. This isn't just about science. It's about hope, curiosity, and the journey toward a future where genetic heart conditions may no longer define our paths. Let's get in the thick of it. Here's Dr. Day and Dr. Ho. So today we're gonna be talking to you about cardiovascular gene therapy. Um, So for those of you who are new to the concept of gene therapy, we'll start off by explaining the different types of gene therapy um, and how these genes are being delivered to the heart. So I'll get started and then Dr. Ho will jump in. Um, So there are several different types of gene therapy. There's something called gene replacement therapy, which is where a normal copy of the gene is introduced into the heart or whatever organ is uh, affected by that particular disease you're treating. In the case where there is a gene that is defective that doesn't make enough of its normal protein. And so essentially you're rescuing the um, protein level of a particular gene by introducing a normal copy. Um, Then there's something called gene silencing therapy, where um, you're using typically an RNA nucleotide to silence or turn off um, a gene that is defective, that's making an abnormal protein that you don't want to be expressed in the heart. And then there's also direct genome editing, and this is where the, um, the genome of the individual is altered at the point where there is a genetic variant or mutation that is causing that gene to be defective. Um, and this is um, accomplished currently by using a technology called CRISPR-Cas9 mediated genome editing. So in all cases, the nucleic acid needs to be introduced into the heart. So it needs to physically get there and get into the cardiac muscle cells and get to the um, the DNA of the individual. And currently the way that that's done is through a viral vector and the virus is called adeno-associated virus. Um, where the gene or nucleic acid is packaged inside that viral vector. The vector then um, is, has a tropism or proclivity for getting into cardiac muscle cells. It releases the nucleic acid inside it when it gets into the muscle cells. Um, and then the, the virus itself is not competent to replicate. And so it releases the DNA and delivers it, but it's not able to replicate. So it doesn't cause a, you know, a, a viral myocarditis, for example. Um, and so that's currently the way that this is um, the genes or nucleic acids are being delivered. Um, gene replacement therapy is the one that we're currently using. It is that particular um, mechanism is being used in phase one and phase two clinical trials currently in cardiovascular gene therapy. So Carolyn, do you want to comment anymore? Yeah, Charlene, thank you so much for that incredibly clear um, overview of what gene therapy uh, really is. And you know, it's probably more correctly called nucleic acid therapy. Um, that you know That's um, sometimes abbreviated NAT or NAT, um, but that's far less sexy sounding than gene therapy. Um, so, you know, gene therapy has, has ruled the day, but it's important to recognize that, you know, what we're trying to do right now is all the gene replacement therapy that, that Charlene um, um, 
described first. So it's really trying to bolster up the amount of protein that is deficient in a cell. So this is um, particularly targeting uh, conditions which are caused by loss of function genetic variants, meaning, um, you know, remember we each have um, two copies of every gene, one inherited from mom and one inherited from dad. So there's a normal copy that's inherited from the unaffected uh, parent and um, an abnormal copy that's inherited um, from the affected parent or introduced spontaneously in de novo cases. Um, And the problem with that abnormal copy is that it's not making enough of the protein of interest. And with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the the poster of child is um, HCM caused by myosin binding protein C mutations, which are almost, um, uh, the vast majority are caused by these loss of function variants. So um, only an abbreviated or truncated version of myosin binding protein is made. Um, And it's probably degraded either at the RNA or the protein level. So you only have a proportion of the normal amount of MYBPC3 floating around your cardiomyocytes as you would want to have. And that's pumped out by the the wild type or normal um, um, copy. So the the purpose of the gene replacement therapy is to um, uh, inject um, normal myosin binding protein C uh, DNA into the cell using these AAV9 vectors and have um, your cellular machinery express more MYBPC3 to try to raise up the protein level uh, to what might be seen in a normal situation, thereby counteract the effect of um, um, having one uh, uh, version of the MYBPC3 gene that's not contributing. Um, So nothing is actually being done to your genome or to your own DNA. It's just introducing this extra DNA to try to um, correct um, what the underlying problem is. So you mentioned myosin binding protein C and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. What other types of heart conditions could gene therapy treat? Um, other types of genetic cardiomyopathies can it treat acquired heart disease? Yeah. So I. I um so in terms of the genetic heart diseases, the, the gene therapy, this gene replacement um, strategy has already gone through phase one clinical trials with uh, pretty um, encouraging results um, looking at Dannon disease. And so that's um, caused by loss of function uh, mutations in the LAMP2 gene. Um, that's a lysosome associated membrane protein gene. It's encoded on the X chromosome. Um, so uh, males are, um, you know, have consistent bad disease. Females are often manifesting, even though they have a normal um, copy of the X chromosome, um, depending on how um, normal and abnormal copies of the X chromosome are inactivated in the, you know, particularly in the heart, um, females can have disease that's nearly as bad as males. They tend to present um, and get into trouble a little bit later. But so um, there has been gene therapy providing normal LAMP2 uh, DNA um, with um, some favorable results in, in terms of initial um, safety readouts. And gene therapy has also been used in Duchenne muscular dystrophy um, um, to try to, um, you know, again, provide more functional dystrophin gene. It's a little bit different, but it's kind of the, the same overall concept. Right. You know, I think with, with dystrophin, the, um, you know, one thing that we'll get into is, are the challenges. And one thing is the packaging limit these adeno-associated viruses. And so dystrophin is an enormous gene. And so in order to get it to be able to fit inside an AAV vector, um, there are parts, internal parts of the pro- of the gene that have been deleted so that the protein that's made is sort of not a, quite as functional as the normal one, but it has some of the essential elements to be able to function better than nothing. So these so-called mini or microdystrophins are what's been introduced into AAV. And 
so far, I believe over a hundred um, children have been treated with with Duchenne mustard dystrophy have been treated, and um, and it is the first um, FDA approved gene therapy um, that's being used clinically now. Um, and then Dannon, as you mentioned, um, it's in, in addition to a favorable safety profile, uh, my understanding is that there was improvement or stabilization of many of the uh, biomarkers in terms of uh, NT pro BNP and LB mass and so forth, and that um, there was improvement in symptoms of many of the patients, but very small trial initially and moving into phase two um, very soon. And then I think you mentioned HCM for myosin binding protein C. Are there any other trials? They are, yeah, they're, they're um, starting to. Um, Developed trials in looking at um, arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy specifically. Um, the most common genetic cause of um, ARVC are variants in plaque filling, which are again um, truncating variants. So it's the same concept of you know, providing more normal plaque filling. And so those are you know a little bit behind um, uh, the MYBPC3 HCM programs in development, fo following a similar pathway. And I think um, one other one worth mentioning is Friedrich's ataxia, which is a neurologic condition, but also has a, a cardiac manifestations and causes a cardiomyopathy that's similar to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And I believe that is also in phase one. So let's talk a little bit about kind of what the ultimate promise um, and potential for the gene therapy is to impact the natural history of disease. Um, is cure a possibility? <laughs> right. So that's the, you know, that's the, um, the holy grail, right? Um, you know, especially when you're talking about the approaches that actually do modify your DNA. Um, so that goes in, you know, with this little molecular scissors clips out the, the, um, the genetic variant um, that's causing disease and inserts um, the correct sequence. So, you know, of course, that's you know, kind of the ultimate dream. But I think that that dream is, you know, quite a bit um, in the distance. These are um, a number of very substantial technological uh, hurdles that have to be overcome before we get there. Um, but that's, you know, what we would think of as being somewhat curative therapy. And then we also have to think of if we're, a, you know, shooting for a cure, when in life does that need to happen? You know, when um, is the ball like irrevocably put in motion, even if we don't see, um, uh, uh, obvious imprint of disease. So how early in life are we going to have to treat? Uh, so a lot of big questions for that. But that's kind of the, the big dream. Um, you know, short of that, the other huge promise um, of gene-based therapies that, you know, that, um, that the proponents are hoping uh, will be realized is more of a one-and-done um, uh, treatment, right? So the other treatments that we have for HTML surgery is kind of one-and-done, but we know that we're not really altering the natural history um, or the disease biology when we do surgical myectomy or invasive um, or, you know, other invasive septal reduction therapies like um, alcohol septal ablation. We're kind of rearranging the morphology and the architecture and can improve the hemodynamics. Um, you know, that's kind of a one-time procedure, um, but, you know, the underlying disease um, persists. So the, um, and for medical therapies, even, you know, new, um, uh, um, you know, exciting medical therapies like cardiac myosin inhibitors, that's probably going to be a chronic um, uh, uh, fix where you'll have to take um, a, a medication, you know, every day probably indefinitely. So with the gene-based therapies, um, there's um, a hope that it will be one and done. You know, this is this therapy is applied and hopefully that will be durable. You know, I think that the big unknown is how long will the effect last? You know, after a single AAV9 injection, um, we can have a boost um, in the levels of MIBPC3, but how long 
um, will that be? And that you know, takes us to one of the big challenges of um, the current delivery system. So, you know, Charlene had mentioned that, you know, one challenge is that these viruses are little and they can only package so much DNA. So an MIBPC3 is really stuffing them full and kind of um, meeting the, the maximum of what they, you know, the, um, you know, uh, in terms of the cargo size, you know, how big is the trunk that you're able to carry around the, um, the, the DNA. So, you know, the, the, the cargo size is one um, issue. And then the other issue is that you will develop antibodies um, to um, the AAV9 vector, the way you develop antibodies to any virus that you're, uh, that you're exposed to. And those antibodies will, will, um, prevent additional doses of AAV9 to boost um, um, down the road because they will neutralize um, uh, the vector. So, you know, you have your one shot <laughs> getting your AAV9 right now, um, and how long that will last um, is, is unclear. Right. And, you know, the, you mentioned some of the really big challenges, and, you know, hopefully these, you know, can be overcome in the future, particularly the ability to redose, because a lot of that is having to do with how long the virus is circulating systemically. And in the amount of time it takes to, you know, if it's there long enough, then you're going to develop these neutralizing antibodies. If you can get it into the cells quickly, um, you know, by some method, then, you know, then it may not have enough time to really mount the antibody response. Um, you know, but that's, you know, going to be a, you know, a big challenge to overcome. I think the other things to think about in, ter um, in terms of challenges, in addition to the ones you already mentioned, are, you know, that there's toxicity of these vectors, right? And so, and right now, the cardiac transduction efficiency isn't that high. Um, and so you need pretty high titers in order to get enough of it into the cardiac muscle cells. Um, and that at a certain level, that produces systemic toxicity. And so there's a requirement currently for some form of, you know, anti-inflammatory therapy, steroids and other things given up front. And I think we still don't have a handle on exactly what the right, what the right cocktail is and whether that should be individualized for different people. Um, you know, and that, and people can get pretty sick acutely if they already have, you know, a cardiomyopathy that, you know, to put some, you know, in a tenuous position, then, you know, then, then that could really put them over the edge. And that I think is, you know, has happened in a, a few cases of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, um, that has resulted in, um, in mortality. So improving the cardiac transduction efficiency with novel vectors, um, that have greater tropism for the heart and less tropism for other organs like the liver, I think is going to be a major focus um, moving forward to try and improve the delivery, safety, and efficacy of gene therapy. Yeah, yeah Charlene, that's, those are such great um, and really important points. You know, these um, this type of therapy is aggressive and it's a, it's a big deal. There are real toxicities associated with this and the risk of mortality is um, non-trivial, right? Uh, and we're battling against um, a systemic immune response, um, which may be over exuberant um, um, on the host side and, you know, require, um, you know, a fairly rigorous um, immunosuppressive regimen up front. Um, um, and, you know, the, like you said, the, the, you know, the actual dosing of the, um, of the virus at those high titers, the high concentrations that we need now is, is also um, a big limitation. Um, and so I think you were hinting at um, patients that were really, sick, perhaps not being able to withstand the, the potential rigors of going through um, um, these gene therapies, you know, in the, you know, that mainly being in the acute time when the people are dosed and may have this like robust inflammatory and, and immune response. So what do you think um, we should be thinking about in terms of the right person um, for gene yeah. therapy? That is the million dollar question. <laughs> more. Um, 
you know, I think as you alluded to earlier as well, you know, when in the disease course is the best time to implement gene therapy. Now, obviously, if it were completely safe and effective and everybody could get it, we'd want to give it to people before they ever develop disease or in the very early stages, but we're definitely not there yet. And so we're in this position where we want to give it to people who may not have other treatment options or their treatment options are limited, you know, and they're already, you know, quite advanced. But at what stage is too advanced, either because it may be unsafe for them to sort of withstand the, you know, the acute potential acute toxic effects of the viral delivery, or that they may not benefit from it because their disease is too far progressed. Are we going to be able to reverse fibrosis? We don't generally think so right now. I don't know if, you know, that may, you know, not be true in the future, but, you know, there's some aspects of these conditions that we tend to think right now, at least are permanent and we can't go back. And so I think currently, um, you know, with Dannon disease, those patients do progress very rapidly. So that was a really good first choice, I think, for gene therapy. Friedrich's ataxia is another example because, you know, they really don't have good treatment options. Um, FA patients often cannot get transplanted because of their neurologic condition. Um, and for Dannon, it's such a rapidly progressive at an early age. And so, and it's fairly predictable, right? It's very high penetrant. Um, and rapidly progressive, whereas some of these other cardiomyopathies, HCM, for example, can progress over the course of years and decades. And, and it's not really predictable who's going to do poorly in the end. Like if we could, you know, use our crystal ball and say, okay, well, we know that you're going to need a transplant in 20 years. You know, this is kind of the window in which we need to do something. But we, you know, as much as we've tried, I don't, you know, and we have some, you know, in, we've gained some insights in terms of predictors of developing systolic dysfunction, advanced disease. I don't know if we're, you know, completely able to do that confidently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like so many great points <laughs> packed into to, um, to that, just to kind of highlight a few of them, you know, so a lot of times people refer to um, the, the ideal candidate, at least for the, you know, these initial trials of gene therapy as being the Goldilocks patient, right? So not too sick that they're either going to um, have trouble um, getting through the, ther- the therapy or, you know, we worry that you're at such an advanced stage that giving you some more, you know, some, you know, just additional MIBPC3 at this point isn't going to help claw back as, as much as needed, um, but not too well um, that it's going to be a, you know, almost impossible to figure out if we've had any impact, at least in the short term, uh, you know, and be like exposing uh, people who may never have problems um, to the risks of gene therapy. So really trying to find where that equipoise really lies, um, I think, is, is um, you know, the, the subject of a lot of um of hard thought and consideration. Um, and the heterogeneity of HCM also makes it hard because, you know, you, you'll notice that the, the earliest diseases that have been tackled by gene therapy are really consistently bad um, diseases. We know that, you know, uh, boys with the sheds muscular dystrophy are going to do bad, uh, badly. Um, and, you know, so it's worth taking a, a chance with a, a higher risk therapy, similarly for Dannon disease or spinal atrophy. You know, so, so those are some of the, the conditions where it's um, the, it seems like a much straighter path, but um, HCM is very heterogeneous and, and, you know, like we need to develop that crystal ball, you know, and that's really a call to arms to the scientific community. Um, um, to try to figure out how we can more accurately predict who's going to do well, 
and therefore we just need to leave them alone. And who's going to do poorly down the line? And that's and those are the people that we want to target for these more um, aggressive therapy. And hand in hand with that, we need to figure out how we're going to detect treatment response, especially if we're you know if we're able to you know hopefully things will progress um, well and we're able to be a little bit more comfortable about the safety of these approaches. And then we'll probably want to start moving the needle back and you know um, instead of treating um, you know symptomatic you know uh, fairly severely affected patients. You know, do we want to try to see if we can provide therapy at an earlier stage to try to prevent disease progression? And again, you know, safety will have to be really securely um, demonstrated, but we're going to need to figure out how we're going to tell we're making those patients better. So we're going to need to develop and identify much more robust predictors of um, disease progression and therefore of treatment response. Yeah, no, those are all excellent points, of course. Um, you know, I think in terms of a how we're going to predict, you know, what are, what are the endpoints going to be? I mean, a lot of the trials are using endomyocardial biopsy to be able to show that they're actually expressing the protein that, you know, you're getting the heart. Cause that's obviously critical. If you don't do that, you're not going to have, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, but that of course comes with, you know, some, you know, safety issues. Obviously we do biopsies, you know, pretty routinely that it is invasive. And so, um, you know, the early trials at least are going to have to demonstrate that they're replacing the gene that they are putting in and hopefully not going, you know, making too much of it. Right. So they have to, so, you know, you don't, you don't want to overexpress genes because that is also not a good thing. So you have to find that exact window um, where you're making just enough to kind of nor- get it to a normal level, but not too high. Um, and, you know, for myosin binding protein C, I think we know from a lot of studies using human tissue, using um, animal models and so forth, that if you normalize the amount of protein, you really should, in theory, cure the disease. But again, it depends on sort of when you, when, you know, when you start. So what do the next steps look like, do you think? Where do we go from here? So we got lots of challenges um, to overcome, and but the trials are moving forward. Um, so so what do you think, you know, we should do? Sit tight and wait for the results for the first time? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a super exciting time, right? All these, um, you know, amazing new um therapeutic approaches um, being considered in ATM. I really never thought that in our careers, you know, that would be seeing this. And all of a sudden, here we are. So it's like an amazing time to be involved in this field. Um, right. We sit tight. We see what happens. You know, can we transduce um, the heart in, in, in an appropriate way? You know, you know, not only can we get the DNA in, but can we get, you know, the you know, a, a reasonable amount of, um, of wild type protein actually expressed and what does the toxicity look like? So I think that, um, you know, um, we're all eagerly awaiting um, this initial experience uh, and that, that, you know, everything that we learn, you know, every little nugget of knowledge is so cr- uh, critically important to help guide next steps. Um, Caroline, you know, I'm wondering, like, you know, you have your patients coming to you and they're saying, you know, what do I do? I'm moderately symptomatic. You know, I, I, you know, like the, the scenario of people that have obstructive disease or the scenario of people that have non-obstructive disease, like what do I, what do I do? Do I go for, you know, if you have obstructive HCM, do I just get on a commercial uh, myosin inhibitor and, you know, follow that pathway? Do I think about some of the, the trials going on? You know, when do I think about gene therapy? How does that, you know, kind of, you know, all fit in your approach? Yeah. I mean, even I think, um, you know, it's important that patients recognize what all the options are, you know, and so that's always been my approach. And now we just have a lot more options. You know, it used to be like, like, well, you can do A or B. Now you can do A, B, C, or maybe D or E. Um, and there are a lot more clinical trials. Like when you and I started in the field, you know, I remember meeting you a long time ago and we said, like, there's, there were really no trials going on. And so this is a super exciting time to see, um, you know, how far things have come and to have so many options for patients. So, you know, I think for someone who's obstructive and, and like the, you know, the, um, 
the gene therapy trials are not including obstructive patients because we do have therapies for those patients, including septal reduction therapy and cardiac myosin inhibitors to improve at least the component of their symptoms that related to obstruction. You know, for non-obstructive patients, I think, you know, it's a very heterogeneous group. And so, you know, there's some who, you know, may respond to cardiac myosin inhibitors that's being tested in clinical trials now. Um, there's some that may respond to, you know, to other medications that are going to be upcoming clinical trials, I think, for those patients as well, for the non-obstructive group. You know, if they're really motivated to do gene therapy trial, I think it's going to be a very, um, you know, in-depth conversation so to make sure that they understand all the potential, you know, um, uh, challenges, the potential toxicity, you know, everything that we've talked about today, I think we have to convey to the patient in order to, you know, make sure that they are truly um, giving informed consent to participate. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very optimistic that this field is going to move quickly in terms of the, you know, because there's so many people working hard, both in academics and in industry on improving the vectors, right, to, um, to find those optimal capsids that are going to improve cardiac transduction efficiency, which would allow us to deliver lower titers, which would make the therapy so much safer that I think people would start to feel better about enrolling in the trials and we would feel better about, you know, about encouraging our patients to, to think about the trials. Um, and I think we're going to see non-viral gene delivery at some point right? through lipid nanoparticles. You know, we just don't have those yet that can get to the heart, um, you know, but they can get to the liver very well. And so if they can get to the liver, I'm sure someone's going to figure out how to get them to the heart. And, you know, getting around the, you know, the development of antibodies so that there would be ability to redose. I mean, I think these are things that are all under active investigation. And I'm hopeful that, you know, in the coming years that we're going to see rapid advancements in these areas that will improve the safety and efficacy of these therapies. Yeah. Incredibly well said. Um, stay tuned, fashion your seatbelt. There's a lot that's going to be happening um, that will be, you know, impactful for our families, you know, not, you know, the patients in front of us right now and also the, um, you know, their generation of offspring. Great. Well, thanks so much, Carolyn. This was really fun to do together. Right. Thanks so much, Charlene. That was Dr. Charlene Day and Dr. Carolyn Ho. For more information on this study, visit hcmsociety.org slash podcast. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon on In the Thick of It.